You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. And I'm Todd Wicks. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, February 15, 2022. Later in the program, we have the latest edition of A Few Minutes with the Mayor, a bi-weekly segment where we pose questions to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton on community issues. More in the bottom half of our show. Also coming up, police officers in Owen County have found animals at a local alpaca farm to be extremely malnourished. WFHB environmental news correspondent Nathaniel Weinzappel has more later in the program. But first, your local headlines. On February 9th, at the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting, Board of Health Director Penny Cottle shared information on the effectiveness of wearing masks to protect individuals from contracting COVID-19. There is another study out regarding the effectiveness of masks. People who reported always wearing a mask in indoor public settings were less likely to test positive for COVID-19 than people who didn't. Some notes about that. A cloth mask wearer reduced their risk by 56%. A surgical mask by 66%. And a KN95 or an N95 by 83%. Remember that wearing a mask correctly is the key. And a cloth mask with multiple layers, heavier material, and perhaps with a filter is much better than a thin mask. So the mask you wear matters. No mask is effective when it's worn incorrectly, such as on your chin. So what does all this mean? It means that transmission is still high in Monroe County and in the state of Indiana. Masks do help to reduce infection and transmission. The data is holding true for how Omicron moves through other places, and we are optimistic that we are moving through this surge of Omicron. Vaccination is still our best tool to end the pandemic and to reduce the risk of a new surge. Continuing to use all of our prevention tools will allow us to move forward from this pandemic. Thank you. During public comment, the commissioners heard feedback from county resident Angela Northcutt about the mask mandate. I'm clearly here about concerns about our county mask mandate. As you know, the CDC has finally admitted that class cloth masks really do not work. N95 masks are recommended by the CDC, but they do not fit children. They are not made for children. Even the CNN health expert this week has stated that masks should be removed from our children, that they're creating psychological and social harms beyond repair. The number of children hospitalized in the state of Indiana is fairly low. Now, any number is not okay, but our dashboard does not tell us if they are hospitalized for COVID or with COVID. Our Monroe County Board of Health, I know, gives you recommendations. And they have said that that we need to keep the mask mandate until the cases are 50 per 100,000. I would like to understand where they're getting that number. It seems like an arbitrary number that they just pick something. If there is data and research, they need to share that with us. 
If you have data, please share that with us. If you have data showing that Monroe County mask mandate is working, please show us because the counties to the right and left of us, some are lower, some are higher. The north where there's no mask mandate, they're substantially lower. If you have data showing that this mask mandate has worked over the past six months, you need to show us. Otherwise, you are not doing benefit to our community. Cottle replied saying that there are lots of factors that contribute to the spread of COVID-19 and recommended that community members with questions should attend the Board of Health meeting. There was a question about how the metric came for losing the mask requirement. And the current regulation is built around CDC's guidance that whenever there is high or substantially high transmission, that everyone indoors in public spaces should be masked. And that's where that is based on. So low to moderate transmission would be less than 50 cases per 100,000. So that's where that came from. Um, and that would also put us in a blue advisory in the state. The board again does meet and certainly things change. Uh, you know, you can look back every three or six months and things are never exactly the same. Things change. That's why the board meets and we'll be talking about what's changed uh, more recently tomorrow night and then the board will make a decision. So um, that's kind of where we are. That's where it goes. The other thing that I would say in terms of data is that if you've paid it attention to all those numbers and all the things on the state map as we go through. We are we have moved into, yes, the whole state is in bad shape, but we tend to be the one of the better counties. And as I mentioned in the report, right now, where are we seeing the trends uh, with numbers declining? They are in the northern part of the state, but that's also where the surge hit first and they are coming out of that surge, and the southern part of the county saw the surge later. So those are all factors that just have to be uh, taken into consideration. The commissioners applauded the work of the Highway Department and Emergency Management staff, saying that they handled the winter storm emergency remarkably. Commissioner Penny Githens pointed out that the Director of Emergency Management, Kate Petroline, and several highway road crews were working 24 hours straight. The commissioners approved an agreement with Clark Excavating LLC for the demolition of surplus property. Facility and fleet manager Greg Crone explained that the structures set to be demolished are too worn to salvage. Uh, we did look at trying to recycle materials out of both buildings. One of the structures is a shelter half like you'd see it at our parks, but due to insect and water rot, there's no recoverable material from it. Uh, the garage structure at some point has been uh, modified to be a, a residence that wasn't ever inspected or under permit. So due to things that were done inside of it, as well as uh, water intrusion and animal damage, there was not any real material in there we're salvaging. So this is for the full demolition and haul away of both of those structures. The next county commissioner's meeting will be held on February 16th. At the Monroe County Council meeting on February 8th, County Auditor Catherine Smith gave an update on the annexation remonstration process. Smith explained that they are still counting the numbers and double-checking certain parcels of land that had previously received waivers from the city. So if the, valid, if the waiver is over 15 years old, I want you to know that I'm following state law. Um, it, the press release kind of sound like he really wanted me not to count those. However, 
when all of us are elected officials, we all swore to uphold state, local, and the laws and the constitution, okay? The state law says it's over 15 years, I cannot count it. So I wanna be very clear with you on what my position was. So I will not be counting any waiver that's over 15 years. So that leaves all the waivers under 15 years. So once we get a good set of the ones that are applicable, we've checked ownership, we've checked all that, then we have to go in and we have to say, what did this piece of property look like? Did it cover this this person's house, that person's house? Because one waiver can cover 300 houses, right? Because it was a farm when it was when the waiver was written, and now it's sub, now it's a big giant subdivision. So um, I have 15 days to finish this. Um, we're going to work consistently, hard as we can, to get it done. But with COVID hitting our office. Uh, the week before the snowstorm and then a snowstorm, I didn't want people to worry about things because I'm sure you've, you know, you know, we were off. You probably heard we had sickness in our office, pretty severe sickness, uh, but we're moving on. And, um, and I, I don't, I don't want people to keep asking, well, are the mayor's numbers right? Are your numbers right? My numbers are not going to be right until we put every piece together and we've investigated every single one in those. We can sort of tell you what we've vetted and we know are going to count. But there's still a big subset of ones we have to deep drill deep down or drill farther down into and do a deep dive into all the attributes and all the variants associated with those parcels. Council member Jennifer Crossley gave an update from the Women's Commission about the number of vacant positions. Not too, too much of an update uh, with the in regards to the Women's Commission. Um, I know that I've been in contact with Michelle. And she's really trying really hard to get people. And um, we've been kind of messaging back and forth to figure out our game plan And because we have some vacancies. I have one person that I'm pushing towards the application process. So hopefully they will apply here soon. But um, again, if public is watching, which I really hope you are, um, please consider joining the women's commission and we won't stop until we get those filled. So that's all I have to say on that one. Next, the council heard from the prosecutor's office about appropriating funds toward a high-tech crime unit in partnership with Indiana University. Prosecuting attorney Erica Oliphant outlined what a high-tech crime unit would entail. First of all, high-tech crime is any crime um, where you can get evidence from a digital um, source. So it doesn't mean necessarily that, I think a lot of people think of, of some of the crimes that take place on the internet, but really it can be anything. It can be homicides, it can be any manner of things. And so the high tech crime unit, what it will do is process digital uh, evidence, do a forensic process on cell phones, computers, sometimes it's even like fitness trackers, any kind of digital device like that that may contain evidence um, can be analyzed by the high-tech crime unit. And um, we will be servicing a region that's it's about 10 counties in our region. Um, right now, the only uh, there's only a couple of these units that are fully operational um, that are kind of serving as prototypes for our um, our high-tech crime unit. So the good news is I don't have to fully uh, reinvent the wheel because we have some models to draw from. Um, and this is a resource that's sorely needed. The nice thing about digital evidence um, is that it 
you know, it, it's very valuable. It can both um, help to prove a case by providing communications about the crime, sometimes even video and photographs of the crime, those kinds of things. Um, but it can also help to exonerate folks who are not guilty of these offenses and help eliminate suspects as well. So um, in some ways, it is as good, if not better, than DNA evidence because DNA really only proves that someone was in a place, but it doesn't tell you when, why, how, and a lot of those things that you can sometimes get from those communications and photographs and things like that. So um, I'm very excited. I do think this is going to provide us some um, beneficial evidence in a more timely fashion in some of those um, bigger cases that we see here in Monroe County. So um, hopefully will help us get uh, better results. The council approved the appropriations unanimously. The next council meeting will be held on March 8th. Police officers in Owen County have found the animals at a local alpaca farm to be extremely malnourished. WFHB environmental news correspondent Nathaniel Weinzapfel has the story. shocking and sad discovery was made at the end of January when police officers from Owen County checked in on the wellness of the animals at the local Sioux Pack of Farms following a request from a veterinarian in the Indiana State Board of Animal Health. When officers arrived, they found the farm to be in a state of neglect, with multiple dead or severely malnourished animals. Animals, including horses, dogs, chickens, and a large population of alpacas were found to be either starving lacking water, were overall in extremely dire conditions. Sadly, a total of 28 deceased alpacas were found at the location. This represents a shocking twist of events for the Supaca Farms LLC. Once an award-winning farm, Supaca had never had a record of neglect or any other complaints. According to the Indian Alpaca Association, the owner, Swaylene Childers of Indianapolis, has or once had a total of 130 alpacas on the property, producing fleece largely for local artisans. At the current moment, Owen County Prosecutor Don Vandermore is receiving police and medical reports involving the farm and waiting to determine whether Childers is responsible or not and if criminal charges will be pursued. A local judge gave permission for the Owen County Humane Society to collect the remaining animals and nurse them back to health. This is not the first significant case of animal neglect in a state. Quite famously, animal breeder Tim Stark, who ran the Wildlife in Need nonprofit park in Charlestown, Indiana, had he shut down his park after he was permanently forbidden from ever owning or exhibiting native or exotic animals in 2021. Tim Stark was made famous for his part in Netflix's hit documentary series Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem, and Madness, and initially capitalized off the coverage he received and even appeared as a main character in the second season. Reports from former workers at Wildlife in Need depict a place that is far from an animal sanctuary. The employees allege that multiple animals lacked food and water and did not have the proper size enclosures that would be required for big specimens such as tigers and bears. Similarly, the veterinarian on staff was unqualified and often animals would die when receiving procedures. Tim Stark himself was reported to have hit multiple animals with blunt objects 
and to murder animals once they grew out of the cute baby face. The outside perception of wildlife and need that Tim Stark cultivated was one of a place where endangered animals were raised or rehabilitated and then sent back into the wild. However, the truth was uncovered when reporters from the WHAS-11 news team could not get Stark to produce the documents that show that such actions took place. Instead, many believed that the older animals were killed and not set free. These crimes were eventually reported to the courts, with a judge from the U.S. Department of Agriculture ruling that Tim Stark was a frequent and willing violator of the Animal Welfare Act. This was the first stone to fall, as more rulings were placed on Stark that culminated in millions of dollars worth of fines and leading to the closing of wildlife in need. These stories offer a glimpse into animal abuse and neglect found in Indiana. While the alpaca farm incident is more recent, the Tim Stark rulings have already begun to cause changes to state laws. A House bill, authored by Representative Dave Abbott, a Republican representative from Noble County, is hoping to ban humans from direct contact with exotic animals, such as the big cats that used to live at Wildlife in Need. While the bill wouldn't restrict people from owning exotic pets, it would make it illegal for the owner to have members of the public come into direct contact with the animal. This is specifically aimed at ending the for-profit baby animal encounter sanctuaries who neglect the baby animals once they become adults. Licensed zoos and other accredited animal sanctuaries are not included in the bill. So far, it has passed the Indiana House and is making its way through the Indiana Senate. It is likely that it will be passed and signed by the governor. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Winesapple. Up next, we have a few minutes with the mayor, a bi-weekly segment where WFHB Assistant News Director Noel Herhusky Schneider poses questions to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton on community issues. Welcome back to Minutes with the Mayor, where we ask your questions and questions we have about what's going on around town. Well, honestly, I just had a curiosity question. Um, I'm sure it's more like, you know, the transportation or utilities department. But I was just curious if you know how much salt does Bloomington put on the roads? And have any studies been done on how that impacts our watershed? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know the uh, amounts. Uh, and, of course, it varies a lot depending upon the precipitation and what, what any given winter is like. We've, um, you know, we try to, we're very sensitive to that. But I think, I think I, it's a good question. Well, I just can't answer it. I know that we're very sensitive to trying to diminish any that we use, we pre-treat in order to try to reduce the amount we need to do. Uh, th this was a storm where pre-treating was couldn't be done, unfortunately, because if it's raining before it's snowing, you can't really pre-treat because it just washes everything off. So we don't do that, um, and um, uh, we're we we I know we try to minimize uh, the use of salt 
Yeah, I was also I was thinking about that, obviously, with the rain and how we had so much time to prepare for the storm coming, but that if we did salt the roads at all before, it would just yeah wash right off. So that was tricky. Yeah, that made it complicated. The rain that turned to sleet that turned to snow, uh, mm-hmm. but we had crews out. Gosh, I don't know, 24 hours. Uh, we, we, we literally, we rent, uh, four downtown hotel rooms for the drivers to get out of the truck, go, go hop in a hotel room, hand the truck off to somebody who just got out of bed and get, keep it going, uh, 24-7, you know. Wow. I did not know that. I knew that it was rigorous. I think Penny Giffins at a meeting mentioned that it was 24-7, but I hadn't heard the hotel thing. So that was, that's interesting. Yeah helps our people, uh, you know, not have to go home and stay on the job and, and uh, but, but stay safe and get good rest as, as efficiently as we can. A different type of emergency uh, than a weather emergency. Um, the Board of Health agreed to potentially lift the mask mandate on March 4th if the governor's emergency order is lifted. Do you agree with this decision? And what else will be affected by the emergency order expiring? Well, you know, I think we've done a very good job locally in trying to follow the science, and um, that is the Board of Health's job, is to review all of that. So I certainly appreciate that they are trying to pay attention to the the changing um, Omicron surge. Um, I The governor's order expiring is has an effect on public meetings is one of the immediate effects. It means you you have to have a very different approach to public meetings. They can't be all uh, remote uh, and you can have a hybrid, but it's quite prescriptive about that. So that would be one very significant change for government operations. I think the masking ordinance and other things that could change locally are, uh, let's, I think let's take it, you know, a week at a time. I wouldn't, we're very hopeful that this Omicron uh, surge, really a severe surge, is indeed um, declining. Uh, the hospital, the hospitals haven't seen the same kind of declines, which you, they're typically a lagging indicator, and there's still people sick and dying in their hospitals from this. So uh, I hope we can stay circumspect. And and uh, but but again, you know, the Board of Health is the health experts, and they're following the data, and I. Looking forward to hearing what they say come March. At the Bloomington City Council meeting, they heard suggestions from Jonathan Ingram, a city consultant, about the structure of Bloomington boards and commissions. One recommendation that they made was that we should hire a... Sorry, I'm going to flip my paper. Let me make sure I'll edit this out at 9.56. Okay. That <laughs> um, a staff member should be solely appointed to organize the boards and commissions. Do you see this happening in the future and in the budget? The boards and commissions are a a big part of city government, and it's interesting to look at uh, how they operate. And, you know, we have been working with city council to review that, and one of the things we wanted to do was get a third party, uh, an independent view, I guess, of how they operate and what their recommendations are. So I definitely take their recommendations very seriously. They recommended combining some uh, uh, boards and commissions. They recommended uh, looking at how much staff time it takes and how to be as efficient as we can with that. So I think I, I don't think we yet know whether that will be a specific um, plank in the budget, if you will. But um, I hope to work with council, which essentially council creates all of these commissions. So we want to work with them 
to, uh, you know, make sure we're on the same page. And, uh, I, I think it's, you know, they're, I think they looked at almost 50, um, some of which are created by state law, but most are created locally and they do amazing amounts of different things from trees to MLK celebrations to status of women to, uh, Latino, uh, affairs, uh, to plan commission and public safety and, you know, so many others. So, uh, sustainability, environmental. Uh, so, uh, I think it's a really good question and it's kind of in the middle of the process to look mm-hmm. at that. And, um, we'll be considering that with the council as we go forward. And then I have one final question that I was really excited to see the new solar and energy efficiency loan program. Uh, for nonprofits and um, organizations in Bloomington. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about that and who can apply to receive these grants. Thanks for asking about that. We, we've part of our recover forward, part of our investment in getting out of this pandemic and moving in the right direction has involved investing in some new ways to uh, address the climate emergency. And we've been working on this for a number of years, but we've accelerated it in the last year or so, including with direct uh, household support, so helping homeowners uh, improve their energy efficiency. And this is a program that you've mentioned, SEAL, uh, S-E-E-L, that is focused on nonprofits uh, and similar organizations and their buildings and trying to help them both have a better climate footprint, lower their carbon impact, and also their bottom line by costing them less for energy usages, whether it's for lighting or heating, air conditioning, et cetera. So uh, any nonprofit, you don't even, you, if you own your building, that's great, but you can be a leaseholder as well. You just have to work with your building owner and uh, we can provide an energy audit. And we can provide really low-cost financing, including potentially some grant money, to help you upgrade your facility. You know, buildings are a really important part of our energy profile. We have uh, a lot of our energy is used to heat and cool and light and take care of our buildings. And there's a lot of room for improvement. So this is one more step, and it's part of our Recover Forward coming out of the pandemic the right way. One more step to try to move Bloomington uh, into our climate action plan and lower our carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. And so this is for nonprofits and um, organizations. Are there any plans to include um, individuals in this and just um, people's homes? Yes, people's homes are already um, qualifying for support and help. Um, uh, their SIREN, Southern Indiana Renewable Energy Network, uh, has been very active in this, and we're a partner with them to help homeowners uh, put in solar panels or otherwise improve energy efficiency. And, you know, we're really proud that Monroe County is one of the leading counties in the state in terms of per capita renewable energy production residential style. And uh, we've been helping folks with that process for some time, particularly low-income households uh, we help. And this this is a new thing where we're helping uh, churches or nonprofits or other organizations to improve their energy efficiency as well. And they're larger, often larger buildings, too. Mm-hmm. I think up to $10,000 grant um, matching and uh, up to a $3,000 value free energy audit to try to find 
you know, those places that have the best bang for the buck to improve the uh, energy efficiency and lower the carbon footprint of various facilities. If you have any questions, send us an email at wfhb.org or give us a call. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. For more information, go online at mpisolarenergy.com. been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Nathaniel Weinzapfel and myself, Noel Herhusky Schneider, in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. And for WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program that explores our solar system and beyond, coming up next on WFHB Community Radio.